This is the Women's Prize for Fiction at 25, brought to you by NatWest, a proud partner of the Women's Prize for Fiction. I'm James Sullivan, and in this podcast series, we're celebrating the 25th year of the Women's Prize for Fiction by bringing you conversations with some of the UK's most talented authors, comedians, creative writing teachers, and ultimately, devotees of reading and writing. In this episode, we're focusing on the prize itself. What makes it so important when it started back in 1996 and still today? What's the landscape like in 2020 for new writers? And for those shortlisted, how did it feel to get that call? You know, people talk a lot about what winning the prize does. But I think one of the reasons why this is an amazing prize is that it does so much to be on that shortlist because my life as a writer really did change. I can't lie to you, when they sent me through a copy of my book with the long list sticker on, I almost cried. And when they sent through the ones with the shortlisted stickers on, I did cry. I don't think any of us could possibly have imagined that it would become the biggest annual celebration of women's creative writing in the world. I don't think we could have imagined 25 years on that we would have put thousands of books into the hands of millions of readers throughout the world and that we would have played an enormous role in changing the dialogue around women's representation, about women in the arts, about how easy it is for women's voices to be left out of uh, the agenda. You can see me, right? I could, and now I've lost you, but I can still hear you. That's odd. My camera is on. Got you back now. Okay. Okay. I'm going to try and start yours for you. Here we go. There we go. Hooray. Hello. (laughs) Hello, I'm Kate Moss. I'm a novelist and a playwright and sometimes a non-fiction writer. And I'm also the founder director of the Women's Prize for Fiction. The prize is now 25 years old, which seems amazing to me. And it came about because of a Booker Prize shortlist back in 1991, where there were no women on the shortlist of six at all. And that, of course, is allowed because judges have the right to choose the novels they most admire, they most love, and that most fit the, uh, I suppose, the you know, parameters, what they've been asked for to to do for the prize itself. However, what worried a lot of us was that nobody noticed there were no women. And it was only when the shortlist of six was announced to the press that people said, you know, this is all men. And a lot of us, uh, women and men, said, can you imagine if they had put out an all-female list? There would have been an outcry. People would have assumed that it was political, that it had been done for reasons other than the quality of text and writing. And it sent us off on a journey to kind of look into uh, the balance of uh, men and women being published, the balance of men and women being reviewed, and certainly the numbers of men and women making it onto the leading prize shortlists and long lists. And what we discovered was really pretty shocking, which was namely that about 60% of novels published in the UK were authored by women. About 75% of novels bought were bought by women, but fewer than 9% of novels that made it to a leading literary shortlist were by women. So it was clear that there wasn't a problem with access to market, but there was a real problem with the honouring and celebrating of women's work, and that women's work wasn't being seen as literature, that there was still this very old idea of what literature was, and actually that essentially meant male white narratives. And so 
we tried to decide what the best thing to do was. And there are always two ways to react, aren't there? When you discover that something isn't quite as it should be, you can either moan about it or you can do something. Wouldn't it be better to launch a brand new prize that was celebrating and honouring women's voices from all over the world? So nationality, race, country of birth, country of residence, age, genre, uh, gender, all of these things, no barrier. It would simply be about celebrating women's writing in English wherever we found it. And that that would be a much more positive way to say that women's voices are as much a part of literature as the traditional male voices. I'm Kamala Shamsi. I'm a novelist. And in 2018, I won the Women's Prize for Fiction for my novel, Home Fire. So the Women's Prize for Fiction was set up around the time I was first getting published. And it was a very new prize then. But I was aware of it right from the beginning. And I think the year Anne Michaels won, which was, I don't know, year two or three, um, and that was this great story of how this book that had sold nothing won this one prize and then became this huge bestseller. So I had a sense from from the earlier stages that this was one of those prizes that could be transformative. The books that were being shortlisted and then winning it, I, I found myself sort of going to read them. It became a way of knowing what is good and what to look for. Um, and I loved so many of those. Uh, those books. So yeah, it, it was a very early ambition, I think, as a writer. If ambition is a wrong word. Um, it was a very early dream, I think, to one day, you know, find myself on one of those shortlists. How has the landscape changed uh, for women authors? In many ways, it's changed gloriously for the better. When I was first talking about uh, setting up the prize and why we were doing it and uh, went on radio and television and wrote things in the paper, there was um, a kind of a strange undercurrent that essentially said, even though it was never said quite this explicitly, that if women were any good, they'd be on the real prize shortlists. And there was also a kind of very insidious uh, kind of counterbalance to feminism, which was essentially saying, if you need feminism, it's because you're not good enough yourself. So there wasn't an acknowledgement of structural uh, misogyny and sexism. There wasn't any acknowledgement that people often choose to work with people who reflect themselves, which meant that the landscape was very much a white male middle class privileged landscape. And a lot of the uh, language that you would you know, take for granted now, my children take for granted now, the idea that diversity and dialogue is good was not present in the mid-90s. And the more we listen and the more experiences that we hear about that are not ours, both the richer we are in terms of our souls, if you like, um, but actually we are more competitive, we are better placed uh, to face the future, if you like. I'm Natalie Haynes and I'm a writer and broadcaster and classicist. And this year, uh, my novel, A Thousand Ships, has been shortlisted for the Women's Prize for Fiction. I think it's probably opened up a little, but, you know, it's inc- the, the pace of change is pretty glacial. Um, I think uh, stand-up's shown more progress, but it started at a really, really low <laughs> pace. So when I went into stand-up, um, women were about 10% of it. And when I left, women were about 10% of it. And I was there for over a decade. And I think now that's changed. Now women are probably you know, something like 20, 25% of, of standards. So it has, it's, it's improved enormously. It's not enough, it's not equality, but it's improved. But with writing, I think it's, it's always felt to me like less of a disadvantage being female in the writing world, that, you know, women tend to buy fiction um, and read fiction. And I am incredibly lucky that because I have the Radio 4 show, audiences come to the, 
to my live events at book festivals who maybe wouldn't go and see another female writer necessarily. I think there's a lot more awareness and attention being given to the kind of disbalances, um, you know, the kind of review space being given to male writers and um, all that kind of thing. So there's, there's a way to go, but I think the conversation has shifted and I think the Women's Prize was a big part of that shift. I came in at a point where it was still, I mean, things were changing, but it was still possible for, or more possible than it is now for publishing houses to take on a writer and, and say, the first novel may not be a huge seller, but you're a writer who we believe in, we're going to build up you up through the course of a career. Um, I think there's much less of that. I think there's there's a much greater demand that um, a writer produce with their first book or their second book. And if they don't, you know, let's drop them and find the next exciting thing. Whereas this idea that that writers get better over time and you have to give them a support structure and believe in them. Um, I think there's much, much less of that. Um, but on the flip side, I think what has happened in the last few years is you now have a lot more really good independent presses who possibly do still have that sort of attitude, um, don't have a lot of money to throw around but will give the books a lot of love and attention and care and launch, you know, a lot of very serious, serious writers. Does a writer have to also be an entrepreneur? Yes, now. Yeah, I mean, you could wish it otherwise. Um, and I don't think it was probably always the case. People's idea of an author is somebody who's very sort of introspective and stays at home and is on their own writing all day and blah 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 it's like well sure you can be that person when you're creating the book but you're not going to sell it that way I mean there are a handful of authors I guess who could be you know defined as reclusive but you'd better have big sales before you decide to reclude because otherwise you're going to be in big trouble yeah it's a luxury isn't it to opt out yes yeah. yeah, it is. And, you know, now's a really good time. If I if I were to run a publishing house, which I uh, ardently hope I never have to, because there must be admin involved in that, um, I would make all new writers do some kind of sort of performance training of some sort, because they're going to have to go to book festivals. And it would just be better for them if they're not nervous about using a microphone or you know, being interviewed by somebody or interviewing somebody. It's another, you know, good way to get those kinds of opportunities is to be somebody who can ask relevant questions of another author at a festival. It feels almost like a contradiction, a creative writer with an acute eye for business and marketing. But being able to promote yourself and your own work seems to be simply part of the deal nowadays. Another apparent contradiction could be the idea of awarding a prize for something as subjective as literature. Is it possible to have a competition that's more supportive than competitive? I asked Kate about this. That's an excellent question because we did uh, consider all of those things. Was it uh, the right thing to say this book we consider better than all the other books? Uh, the issue is, I'm afraid, that also all of arts um, sponsorship exists in the real world. It exists in the business world and it exists very particularly in the media world. And the, the truth is that a competition. It is, I'm afraid, the way to get attention. And our job is to make sure that incredible work of beauty, of skill, of imagination, of life, of joy, these novels get into the hands of as many readers throughout the world as possible. So our job is to use every sort of uh, trick in the book, if you like, to make them get out there. However, 
we decided very early on, and we were the first to do this, that we would release a long list. It was 20 when we started, it's now 16. And we would promote that uh, class of, as it was 1996, and it's now, you know, 2020, um, to readers and libraries in particular, and have a relationship with the library sector for the long list. And then with the short list, we would release that, but there would be many, many events that would go around it. We've just launched something called Discoveries, which is to support the people who want to write the people of tomorrow, however old they are. Um, and discoveries will be actively looking for voices that are underrepresented or underheard throughout the country. And that is a writing competition. So every year the prize was founded with the idea that there would be a special uh, project or an initiative that would go alongside the prize cycle. So the first one was uh, key stage three classroom guides for boys because there's a fall off in boys reading but when they go to secondary school. Uh, so we provided those free of charge. We've done prison reading groups. We've done huge research projects. So that is the way that we make sure that we are inclusive, that we work all year round. We work with our sponsors and our partners to provide a range of activities and thought workshops, if you like, to make sure that the Women's Prize is the place to go for any discussion about writing by women. So if you like the shortlist and the winning, that, that is a tiny part really of what we do now. And as a charity trust, it's our responsibility uh, to include as many people as we possibly can. And that's that's what we work on. I've been shortlisted three times for it. With Home Fire, the one that won, and I found that I was on the long list um, while I was on, a, on an airplane. God, I don't know where I was. I knew the time at which they were going to announce it online. And, and there was uh, Wi-Fi on board. And I, and I have this thing that I don't go online on planes because it's kind of my one space where you can be for a number of hours without going online. I thought, who am I kidding? I'm going online. Um, and so I went online and, you know, pre pressing refresh and refresh. And, and suddenly, you know, there it was. And I saw, I saw my name. And, and then you're on this plane surrounded by strangers. There's really nothing you can do to celebrate. Um, and so I just sort of did a little internal yay and then, you know, carried on sitting there waiting several hours to, to land. It doesn't get less thrilling, I have to tell you. Oh, yeah, I was going to ask, yeah, does, does it change your relationship to it, having been nominated a couple or three times? I and mean, I think the first time is sort of extraordinary in a particular way because there's been nothing in your life like this before. And I, I, should I be really bluntly honest, Jane? Uh, of course. <laughs> the first time around, I got the shortlist and I thought, I don't need to win and I'm not going to win because I'm on a shortlist with Marilyn Robinson, who is one of the goddesses of fiction. In fact, she did win and that was the right thing. Um, and really that first time, of course, as a bit you think, wouldn't it be lovely to win? But I had no, beyond that, I had an almost total certainty that I wouldn't. And even the second time, I had an almost total certainty that I wouldn't and that Ali Smith, who is the best fiction writer we have in Britain, would win and should win. And the third time I thought, oh, God, I'd really like it this time, you know. <laughs> and I think I might have a chance. Um, and so so the third time, the idea of winning was a bigger sort of thing in my brain. You know, people talk a lot about what winning the prize does. But I think one of the reasons why this is an amazing prize is that it does so much to be on that shortlist because my life as a writer really did change. Brings you to the attention of so many more readers. Um, you know, it's extraordinary. I was in my flat because it was during lockdown. My editor mailed me. It was about eight o'clock in the evening. I just finished kickboxing class uh, and dripping with sweat and exhaustion. 
And I read this mail and I, I mailed her back and said, I'm almost certainly going to make you have to bleep this out, I suppose. Have you got a bleep option? I, I definitely do have the option. Let's, let's give it a go. But yeah, I mailed her back with the simple sentence, are you kidding me? Question mark. <laughs> Three kisses and sent it back. I can't lie to you. When they sent me through a copy of my book with the long list sticker on, I almost cried. And when they sent through the ones with the shortlisted stickers on, I did cry. Is there any particular feedback that you've had about the prize that sticks in your mind as being something you're particularly proud of? That is a lovely question because normally, of course, people say, what's the worst things people ever said about the prize? And, you know, I have, you know. You haven't heard the second part of the question. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. If I, you know, when I publish a memoir, if I ever do, you know, they're all in there, let me tell you. Yeah, it is a prize about being positive and thinking forward. I think um, being told by um, a publisher who I think was part of Penguin Africa at the time. That that imprint doesn't exist anymore, but it was quite early on in the prize. And we were having a conversation at a, an academic event, um, at a university academic event, and I was speaking for the prize and she was speaking for her publishing and her responsibilities um, in Nigeria. And she said, you must never underestimate, Kate, the mere existence of the prize means that women all over the world believe there is something that they might be part of. And I hadn't ever thought about it making a difference to what got published in the first place. I had always thought, yes, of course, it makes a difference to what gets honoured. But the idea that this publisher said to me, now a wonderful book by a novel, um, you know, when you're sit- they were sitting in the head office in Lagos, and it comes in and says, strong candidate for, as it was called then, the Orange Prize, now the Women's Prize. And that was a really powerful moment for me. I thought, of course, because it starts earlier. It's not just about the finished book. It's about all the people who might now have a book. And that is a very important thing. And then when I see, for example, uh, Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie on the Royal Festival Hall stage interviewing Michelle Obama, and I remember that Chimamanda's first novel, uh, Purple Hibiscus, was on one of our very early uh, shortlists. And then, of course, she, Uh, Chimamanda won with Half of a Yellow Sun. And you see the kind of the people who were there right at the beginning and are there now these superstars in the world. And that is a wonderful, not because of the prize, but just because of that fact of seeing people on their creative journey, which you don't often get to see. And this year, one of the books on our very strong shortlist is by Bernadine Evaristo, Girl, Woman, Other. And when Bernadine was shortlisted, she put out a tweet saying, I have followed this prize for 25 years. I remember it being set up. And so it is wonderful to be on that list. And those things, the idea that a career is long, that a prize can genuinely be part of a writer's life all of that time. You know, Carmela Shamsi, when she won two years ago for Home Fire. She had been shortlisted when it was the Orange Prize. She'd been shortlisted when it was the Bailey's Prize. And she said, but I'm really glad to win it now. It's called the Women's Prize. And that sense of the life of an author's career, you know, the the sort of breadth of it and the prize being there in the background. That's one of the things that gives me the most pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Women's Prize for Fiction at 25, a podcast brought to you by NatWest. This year, Women's Prize Trust is partnering with NatWest and Curtis Brown to launch Discoveries, a unique programme searching for the most talented and original new female writing voices in the UK and Ireland. Think this could be you? 
visit womensprizeforfiction.co.uk and search for Discoveries to find out more.